Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Now I See. It's based upon the lectionary readings for March 22nd, 2020, the fourth Sunday in Lent. How quickly the world changes. When I started working on this essay a couple of weeks ago, the children in my town were attending school, local businesses were open and thriving, The shelves in my local grocery store were well-stocked. The church I attend was gearing up for Holy Week. My daughter was enjoying a semester abroad in Ireland. My husband, an ER physician, was experiencing fairly normal work days, and I had never heard the phrase social distancing. Now, just days later, schools and universities around the country are closed. Libraries, restaurants, cafes, and cultural centers are shutting their doors. I can't find hand sanitizer, bathroom tissue, or other staples at the local grocery. My church will offer worship services online for at least the next month. My daughter is flying home ahead of a federally mandated travel ban between the United States and Europe. My husband's experiences in the emergency room have drastically changed, and I'm learning to maintain a three-foot distance from every human being I encounter. Welcome to life in the shadow of COVID-19. Like I said how quickly the world changes. Or maybe change isn't the right word. I've heard people use the word apocalyptic to describe what life feels like right now, and I'm wondering if that's the better word. After all, an apocalypse, rightly defined, is an unveiling, a revelation of things previously unseen or unknown. Maybe the world hasn't changed so much as it has been exposed, uncovered, made plain, laid bare. Maybe we were blind before, and the time has now come to see. To see what exactly? That we are fragile, that we are one, interdependent and interconnected, that our daily choices can have life and death consequences for other people, that unselfish love is risky, inconvenient and essential, that so much more is at stake in our spiritual lives than our personal safety and comfort, that we are supposed to be people of the cross, even as we are also people of the resurrection. Our gospel story for this fourth week of Lent is about costly seeing. One of my favorite poems, The Place Where We Are Right, by Israeli poet Yehuda Amakai, captures what I believe is the heart of the gospel's message. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. In John's Gospel, Jesus sees a ruined man on the Sabbath, a man who has been blind since birth. When Jesus sees him, he kneels down, spits on the ground, makes a muddy paste with his saliva, rubs the paste on the man's eyes and instructs him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. When the man obeys, his sight is restored. Though this is a miracle story, the Gospel writer doesn't spend too long on the healing itself. The focus of the lection is on the religious community's response, both to the man's blindness and to his restored sight. And it is in the response that I think Amakai's poem resonates, speaking powerfully to the challenges of our own time and place. From the place where we are right, the poet says, flowers will never grow in the spring. In other words, one of the most barren and desolate places we can occupy as Christians is a place of smugness, 
of rightness, of certainty. The more convinced we are that we have full insight, comprehension, and knowledge, the less we will see and experience of God. Even before Jesus heals the blind man, the disciples assume that his blindness is his own fault. So they ask Jesus who has sinned and incurred God's displeasure, the man himself or his parents. But Jesus rejects the entire premise of their question. There is no relationship between the man's condition and his sinfulness, Jesus says. God does not make people sick in order to punish them for wrongdoing. To step away from our brother or sister's suffering because we assume it's divinely ordained is not righteous. It's reprehensible. In the story John tells, Jesus sees the blind man, a man whom no one else really sees. In the eyes of his peers, the man is contaminated, burdensome, and expendable. In his community's calculus of human worth, the blind man barely registers. He's not a human being, he's blindness, the condition itself with all of its accumulated meanings. Which is why when the man's sight is restored by Jesus, his own townspeople, the people he has lived and worshipped with for years, don't recognize him. They don't know how to see him without his disability. To do so would be to recognize a common humanity, a bond, a kinship, and that would be intolerable. So of course when the man shows up at the temple healed and whole, the community rallies to discredit his story, to restore order, reestablish a social hierarchy, and reinforce the status quo. But why? Why does the community feel such an urgent need to silence the healed man? I wonder if the core reason is fear, a fear so primal and so deep it drives away all compassion, all empathy, all tenderness, all sense of kinship. If the man's blindness isn't a punishment for sin, then what does that mean about how the world works? Anyone might get sick, or suffer from a disability, or face years of undeserved pain and suffering for no discernible reason whatsoever. That wouldn't be fair, would it? That would be a version of reality the good religious folks can't control. A terrifying, destabilizing version. Who among us can bear to surrender the illusion of control? Not only does the community's legalistic approach to faith prevent them from seeing the healed man, it also prevents them from seeing God's love and power at work in their midst. No one in the story rejoices when the man is healed. No one, not even the man's parents, expresses joy or wonder or gratitude or awe. No one says, I'm so happy for you, or asks, what is it like to see for the first time? Does the sunlight hurt your eyes? What are you excited to look at first? Instead, the community responds with contempt. It's need to preserve its own sense of righteousness, more important than celebrating a fellow human being's restoration to life. The place where we are right, the poet says, is hard and trampled like a yard. Hard and cynical, hard and suspicious, hard and stingy. This suggests to me that vulnerability, softness, curiosity, and openness are essential to real seeing. The Gospels tell us that Jesus' true identity eludes just about everyone until after his resurrection. Even his disciples struggle to understand who and what their teacher is. Most of the people who encounter Jesus are too busy seeing what they want to see. A magician, a heretic, a political and military leader, a carpenter's son, a wise man, a phony, a clerical threat. To notice what the blind man, free of all such filters, discerns by the end of the story. 
The blind man alone sees Jesus as the Son of Man and calls him Lord. We might say then that this is one of the rare and beautiful moments in the Gospels when Jesus himself is truly seen. The blind man sees Jesus as wholly and purely as Jesus sees him. The gaze and recognition in this story are mutual. Because the healed man has no preconceptions, because the spiritual ground he stands on is soft and supple, he is able to see God as God is. Doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, like a plow. They allow the whispers of God's Spirit to bring forth new life. Whether we want to or not, over the coming weeks, we will face a choice, the choice to see or to turn away. Will we allow the ground we stand on to remain pliable, or will we harden our stance and refuse to grow and change? During these hard days, who are the people we might render invisible with our cherished theologies, our dogmatic political views, our legalistic approaches to justice, fairness, generosity, and sympathy? Who might we deem expendable during this season of mass illness and fear? Whose joys will we be unwilling to celebrate because we're so busy hoarding our own? Will we be flexible in the ways we extend love across distances, or will we hunker down in fear and suspicion? Will we dare to be the church in new ways even as we practice quarantines and social distancing? Or will we forget that we are one body, connected and interdependent, incomplete without each other? Will we have eyes to see God in our neighbors, regardless of whether they are sick or healthy, insured or uninsured, citizen or foreigner, protected or vulnerable? Will we be brave enough to look our own vulnerability, our own mortality in the eye, and trust that God is with us even in the valley of the shadow of death? Or will we yield to cynicism, panic, and despair? I am in awe of the trust the healed man has in Jesus by the end of this week's gospel story, a trust deep enough to enable him to bear honest, radical witness to his experience, even at the risk of censure and excommunication from his religious community. In shedding his identity as the man blind from birth, the healed man becomes a disciple, a traveler, a pilgrim. He commits himself without looking back, straining forward instead of clinging to what others tell him is right and true. He is, in the truest sense, born again. During this Lenten season, may we, too, confess our blindness and receive sight. May we also praise the one who kneels in the dirt and gets his hands dirty in order to heal us. May we also soften and prepare the ground we stand on, so that when new life appears in whatever surprising guise God chooses, we will embrace, cherish, celebrate, and share the good news, too. For books this week, Brad Keister reviews Nervous States, Democracy and the Decline of Reason by William Davies. There are now many books in print that attempt to analyze the polarized political climate in our society. In this book, William Davies reaches back in history much further than most analysts, arguing that the root of many present conflicts lies in the erosion of a mutual acceptance of reason as a basis for public discourse and governance. This decay has taken place over several decades, and not just a few years, but the framework itself is centuries old. For the foundation of reason as a bedrock of Western society, Davies turns to the Thirty Years' War, 1618 to 1648, which exhausted the combatants in terms of lives and treasure. 
Following a war that was notionally about religious conflicts, though it was more than this, Davies argues that leaders turned to reason as a basis upon which all could agree, even if they had different religious perspectives. In Davies' view, this action has provided a stability over several centuries, upon which both leaders and citizens could rely. But this structure has started to unravel. Among the many factors that Davies cites to make his case, there is a growing distrust of institutions and the people termed elites who run them. There is a disconnect, for example, when governments point to statistical economic indicators suggesting that the quality of life in society is improving, while in fact large sectors of the country have been declining. If I no longer trust these institutions, why should I trust the basis of reason that elites use to justify their actions? Davies believed that this conflict with institutions has led to a more warlike atmosphere, even in the absence of immediate military conflict. In wartime, decisions are often made using information that is readily at hand and are not worked out slowly in a rational fashion. This leads to a heightened sense of anxiety. Western society has seen the rise in the importance of stories as a means of communication. Certainly, a story can sometimes have far more impact than a carefully reasoned argument. Davies concludes that it is critical for those of us who support a rational society to engage with those with a story and an opposing point of view. Failure to do so may mean that the future will be dominated by the story that has the most physical power to go with it, making the Thirty Years' War seem much less of a historical relic. For films this week, Dan reviews Everybody Knows. This crime thriller by the Iranian director Asghar Farhadi, who has won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film for two times, premiered at the 2018 Cannes Film Festival. The story revolves around Laura, played by Penelope Cruz, who leaves her husband Alejandro behind in Buenos Aires in order to return to her hometown near Madrid for a family wedding. They are hosted by Paco and his wife Bea. When Laura's rambunctious teenage daughter Irene is cavorting with her boyfriend Felipe in the church bell tower, we learn that long ago Laura and Paco were lovers. Everybody knows, says Felipe. And when Irene is kidnapped during the wedding reception and long-buried family secrets and bitter animosities spill out, once again we're told that everybody knows the biggest bombshell of all, that the key is the key to solving the whodunit. The villagers do talk. Of course, most everybody in this bickering family becomes suspect. Should they call the police? Why did Alejandro stay in Argentina? And what's with all of his god talk? Will the drone video of the reception reveal anything? Most of all, what about Paco and Laura? Dan watched this film on Netflix streaming in Spanish with English subtitles. And lastly, during these challenging times, we offer a prayer, a coronavirus prayer, for all those who are anxious, for all those who are ill, for all those who wait through this hard time. A coronavirus prayer by Carrie Weber, executive editor of America, the Jesuit Review. Jesus Christ, you traveled, you traveled through towns and villages, curing every disease and illness. At your command, the sick were made well. Come to our aid now, in the midst of the global spread of the coronavirus, that we may experience your healing love. Heal those who are sick with this virus. May they regain their strength and health through quality medical care. Heal us from our fear which prevents nations from working together and neighbors from helping one another. Heal us from our pride, which can make us claim invulnerability to a disease that knows no borders. 
Jesus Christ, healer of all, stay by our side in this time of uncertainty and sorrow. Be with those who have died from this virus. May they be at rest with you in your eternal peace. Be with the families of those who are sick or have died. As they worry and grieve, defend them from illness and despair. May they know your peace. Be with the doctors, nurses, researchers, and all medical professionals who seek to heal and help those affected and who put themselves at risk in this process. May they know your protection and your peace. Be with the leaders of all nations. Give them the foresight to act with charity and true concern for the well-being of the people they are meant to serve. Give them the wisdom to invest in long-term solutions that will help prepare for or prevent future outbreaks. May they know your peace as they work together to achieve peace on earth. Whether we are home or abroad, surrounded by many people suffering from this illness or only a few, Jesus Christ, stay with us as we endure and mourn, persist and prepare. In this place of our great anxiety, give us your peace. Jesus Christ, heal us. Amen. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for the fourth Sunday in Lent, March 22, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.